Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. G'day everybody, it is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. Time for a Q&A edition this week and I'm joined sitting across from me. He's real, he's here in person, he's in Melbourne HQ. Stefan Bartholomew, welcome back. It's what, trip number two to the office since you've been here. That's a very low office visit to employment ratio, but we're working on improving it. That's probably about average for the world in the last sort of 12 months, so working from home is the, the new black. It is, it is. Uh, great to have you here. We've got another pile of questions from our V8 Sleuth faithful who uh, find ways to think of things that not even we can think of, and we normally think of everything, but just when we think we've thought of everything, someone comes up with something else. I'm going to just bowl straight in. Let, let's just go straight into it, because there's there were so many questions, actually, we just can't get to them all, but we've picked as many as we can to be able to give as many insightful answers as I think we can. Uh, Trent Urza on Facebook asks, will we see the three supercar Enduros again in the future? And by that, he's meaning Sandown, Bathurst, Gold Coast. Well, you've, you've said we're going to give insightful answers, so we'll have to, have <laughs> no to do pressure. our best to wing it here. But um, that's, that's a question that uh, – it's a great question and one we really don't have a firm answer on. Um, we obviously it was trimmed down from from three to one last year with the COVID situation, and also to save save costs. Mm. And unfortunately, teams don't tend to vote for adding costs back in very often. <laughs> no, they're not so good at that. Based on that, you'd fear that that Bathurst might be it for a little while. I think the only way you sort of see it coming back is if a promoter wants to pay more, whether it's an independent promoter like the Bend or a government like the Queensland with the Gold Coast Six Hundred, whether the economics of that stack up that someone wants to pay more for a premium product, but at the moment, it's just Bathurst. I think it's not going to happen. Well, I guess Trent's question is in the future, and that's that could be deemed any way. What is the future? One year, five years, ten years? Clearly, it's not happening this year, and I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because, as you say, uh, they're not going to want to add cost. Don't forget that they're saving money in terms of less running of the cars. Obviously, it's more kilometres in terms of racing. They're not having to pay co-drivers to do three events. They only have to pay them to do one. So there's a bunch of different savings here that I think they'll be all quite reluctant to hand back. So I would love to see a 500k back. It's part of our tradition. It's our history. Don't get me started on the Sandown 500 again. But uh, if it's not Sandown, it should be somewhere because I think it's really... It's really unfair. It's really difficult to expect co-drivers, even if they're racing a GT car, a TCR car, or Super 2, or, or whatever it is, to roll into the grand final and kick the ball straight and not kick it out of bounds uh, without barely getting a training session in to put a bit of a football term to it. It's it's really hard to fathom. I think we've got to find a way to look to get back to a, a 500 to at least give these guys a bit of a warm-up and don't just put them in cold at Bathurst. That's rough. Yeah, and when a co-driver kicks the ball out of bounds, it can cost a team a couple of hundred grand putting a new car together. So, yeah, you've only got to do that once every couple of years and you've lost all the money you gained not hiring a co-driver for three events. So. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. It's an interesting one, Trent, isn't it? Uh, love to see. Uh, I'm still saying 
such and such has signed to drive for X team for the Enduros. It's part of the vernacular. It's hard to beat it out of the, the system, but it's for the Enduro. It just doesn't sound right, though. For Bathurst is all you've got to say, really. And just the rhythm of having the 500, particularly Sandown, but obviously we've had it at other places too, as a lead into Bathurst, whether you're media or fan or whatever, I think the rhythm of that is so ingrained in our history that it's it feels really odd to, to not have that. This year we warm up for Bathurst in the West, Wanneroo Raceway, first time ever that we've uh, raced there as the lead-in round to the Bathurst 1000. Uh, Nibs Azur is our next question, and, and you might know Nibs's name. You might, If you follow Twitter, you might have seen him pop up. Uh, he's involved with another podcast, another radio show, The Driver's Seat. They do a great job, the boys, Matty McKeldin, Steve Johnson, and Nibs on uh, SEN. You can listen to it around the country. Um, good question. It kind of links here to what we are just talking about. For a track with so much history that provides so much good racing and is loved by the fans and drivers alike, what is it about Sandown that keeps making supercars try and remove it as a regular track on the calendar? Discuss. Unfortunately, the answer starts a bit the same as the last one where it's economics, right? Like these these events, pretty much all supercars events, rely on a government-funded component and sometimes Victoria wants to play a bit more than, than other years and they obviously put a lot of money into Albert Park. And, and regionals the, too. And the only reason we saw um, Sandown on this year is because Albert Park got, got moved around. Clearly Victorian government wants to also, and other governments, want to inject money that also puts events into country areas as well. So that's clearly an element. Uh, it's always been the track that's missed out. I mean, it lost the 500, what, 42 times, like, and it went back 41 times. So it, it's one of those scenarios where it just always feels like it's the the odd one out that's left at the dance with no one to dance with, but it's ready and willing and able to, and it just never seems to get the love. It, it sort of gets little spurts and then it gets forgotten about. It loses its spot on the calendar. It loses the 500. Um Money's been spent there for the, the resurfacing. I know it does have a, a bunch of different surfaces now. They put in that runoff area down the end of the back straight there. So they've, they're not afraid, the Melbourne Racing Club, to spend some money. It's not like it's going to close down next year, but we've kind of got this whole ticking time bomb thing of how long have we got sand down for. We've kind of been watching the clock for 10 years, but we're still going. But it, it is a shame because it's a... We've got a lot of tracks that have got great history and we've got events that have emerging histories that over the last 10 or 20 years have, have written their own. But this place is, you can't replace heritage like that. You can't just click your fingers and suddenly you've got another iconic, historic, uh, meaningful, purposeful event slash venue. Uh, they've got to find, this This thing should be a walk-up start. It's in metropolitan Melbourne Melburnians go to events. They it could be raining, hailing, sleeting. They go to stuff. So uh, it's got yeah. Anyway, I rest my case. All those reasons, and that's not even mentioning the fact that it's just a damn good racetrack for car racing. As yeah, we saw oh, uh, exactly. A couple of weeks back. It was was the last round of the championship not enough to convince people that it was. It was good stuff. It does help that it's 15 minutes from my house too. It that's... also helps that it often rains. So yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that that's adds good. to the entertainment as well. Pack your jacket, pack your jacket. Uh, Zach Dowdle, this is a good one too. We're bowling out the good ones straight up here. Once international borders open, he asks, and allow international drivers into the country, can you see the Gold Coast becoming a split supercars slash open wheeler event again, just as it was back in the day of IndyCars with supercars? This is really hitting on all your favourite topics here. I pretty much. That IndyCar race is a bit of you. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, short answer, I can see it. I can see S5000 on the Gold Coast for sure. 
premium primary event for their category. Great to join with supercars. Supercars aren't dripping in heaps and heaps and heaps of support categories at the moment. We saw S5000, which of course is actually run by the Australian Racing Group. It's on a separate bill, uh, but it ran at Sandown with the supercars. Even though so many people see them at war with one another, I can actually see that there's some smart business to be had here by grabbing the best categories of um, the ARG platform, whether it's GT here or there, which is going to happen with supercars, or S5000, and fill a slot at a supercars round with one of the good categories that really connects and fits. S5000 on the Gold Coast fits, makes total sense. It's at the time of year when the weather's great, when overseas categories have pretty much come to an end, if not close to coming to an end, I can picture that being a really good kickoff for a summer series or along those lines, which I know that category's been keen to do ever since it was created. I absolutely can see it, Zach, for sure. S5000, Gold Coast, pounding around there like the days of IndyCar, for sure. Yeah, and we have seen one of the cars actually do a demo back in 2017. Mm. Which um, in S5000 world, such a long time ago, because as you say, <laughs> there's been so many shots fired in all different directions, some people changing teams in the whole whole equation as well. But it comes back to the fact that even though there's sort of a supercars ARG business rivalry that comes to the fore on occasion, this is actually a case where they need each other mm. because the Queensland government still yearns for some sort of open wheel international attractiveness that they miss from the old days of IndyCar. And we've got these cars here in Australia that tick the box for spectacle and chuck in a bit of money and you can have a Rubens Barrichello type. Mm. You can have a bunch of those guys come down and make the event closer to what it used to be. So, um, for sure, I, I think the plan, to be honest, for 2020 was to have S5000 on the bill there mm. and COVID obviously just turned everything upside down. It'll be pretty tricky to see it happen this year because I think with the way the events roll in the back end of the year now, you've got AGP, Bathurst International, and Gold Coast on like consecutive weekends towards the end. So that's be right. A- Just keep wheeling them out. Keep racing. Assuming they've got enough tubs left with the <laughs> suspension bits still hanging off them by that point. But- be positive. Be positive. <laughs> I-, I like it. I like it. I think Zach's on something there. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Dennis Idol, he's got a question. What's the story with the VE Commodore? that uh, Greg Murphy used to get pole at Bathurst in 2011. He drove the wheels off it to get third in the race after being as low as 19th. Um, of course, he drove that with Alan Simonson, the late Alan Simonson. He said, was it the oldest car in the Kelly fleet or a Perkins-built car? What was the story with it? So my understanding is this is could be the last Perkins engineering plated car. Correct. So if there's if there's a Perkins book being created right now, <laughs> is this going to give away the final chapter? Is this how it ends? This, this is how it ends, but it's only probably going to give away 0.1 of a percent of content from the Still book. Still think so. a spoiler alert's a good idea yeah, sometimes. Yeah, 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 it's very true. And by the way, there is a Perkins history car book being done, which is an amazing thing. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you've probably heard us talk about it, but uh, we are working on a book covering uh, the history of Larry's cars. We've spent some time this week with Jack Perkins, which was really great to talk about some of the old cars, uh, connect us in the right areas to some of the people that we we need to go and talk to. Um, It's really been an engrossing project to do and it'll be out a bit later in the year. You can pre-order your copy now from our website. It's bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. But you're right, this is the last Perkins Engineering plated car, but it had been around for a couple of years before Murph got his hands on it and they let loose with the Pepsi Max weird-ass liveries because they had a few different ones that year that looked like they were um, 
inspirational. Some of those, they were pretty out there. Uh, but it was Todd Kelly's car in 2009. And when you said about it being plated, so it was plated as Perkins Engineering Chassis 49, so the last car in the line. But it was kind of by that stage, Larry had sold his team to the Kellys, who formed Kelly Racing with the, the franchises involved. So it had kind of been started at Larry's because it had been plated, but it was finished at Kelly Racing. So it's a it's a Perkins car, but it's a Kelly car, but it's a Kelly car, but it's a Perkins car, basically. But it gets in the book. It's the end of the line for the Perkins Engineering chassis. So um, it's it was Todd's car in 09. Actually, I think that's the one that he – remember that he got – rammed into he'd spun at Barbie Gallo and Lee Holdsworth rammed him in the B pillar. That was that car. So it was repaired later on and, and came back on the scene. Now I'm not good at the book plug, so I won't even attempt it. <laughs> but on, I believe this, this may have been Cito's last Bathurst car as well. Uh Bugs's car. Yeah, the rock car. Yes. That's right. Yeah, good point. So do you want to do the book plug now? Because you've you've started it. Well I think it it plugs you wrote itself. the book. Cito's last Bathurst 1000 car, read all about it. Yeah. And how great it was to drive and (laughs) definitely not an absolute nightmare around (laughs) Phillip Island in particular. Uh, I got a funny feeling he might have said the opposite to that. But uh, Cito, the uh, official racing history of Glenn Seaton, yes, you wrote it. We published it. It's in our online bookshop now as well. So pre-order Perkins, buy Seaton, buy all the other stuff there and you'll be be sorted. Bookshop.vhedsleuth.com.au Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. Jeff Schmidt has the next question, and this is oh, this is up your alleyway as a proud South Australian. What are the chances that we'll see racing ever return to the Adelaide Parkland circuit? The bend's great, but it doesn't have the same intensity and carnival atmosphere as the street circuit. Are the streets of Adelaide gone forever as a motorsport destination? Well, I guess this is similar to the the first question about the Enduros. Like you just can't see it coming back. The Adelaide, certainly the Adelaide Five Hundred, um, but you'd you'd hate to say never at the same time. Um, I, I sort of like the, well, he the didn't gut he feel. didn't say never. He said forever. So <laughs> it's different. <laughs> the gut feel is something like. Formula E, which has been talked about for a while, that I could more easily imagine it coming back in a different event form. But, um, yeah, certainly I'd love to see the Adelaide 500 back. But once they uh, put the full stop on this stuff, geez, it, uh, they don't seem to come back too often. Hard to restart from a standing start when it all gets wound down and facilities and uh, concrete barriers and all of the bits and pieces that make up a street circuit are sold off or moved or put to other places. So sadly, I'd have to agree with you. Uh, Luckily, though, we've done the Sensational Adelaide History of the Adelaide 500 book. It's currently at the printers and it will be out very soon in about a month or two's time. So for those who've pre-ordered, it will be in the post to you very soon. If you haven't pre-ordered, you should. I won't do any more book plugs. I think you all get yeah. the point. People might start to question whether these are actual real questions. They are real <laughs> questions. Go to our Facebook page. They were all posted there uh, recently. They are legit. Uh, Chris Holborn, he's legit. His question is, he's been watching the replays of the 93 and 94 Bathurst races, which, by the way, are available on DVD from our online store too. So, see, that it's not that we're plugging everything. It's because we cover everything that matters to V8 Sleuth 
followers, lead, uh, listeners and readers. So that's what it is. It's the other way around to, to what you're thinking. Anyway, he's been watching these replays and he noticed that the cars back then were able to slipstream, pass more easily and were much more livelier than their modern-day counterparts. So what's the difference in downforce between the early 90s cars and the current supercars? Well, I mean, the slipstream part of it is they were making some pretty big drag in those days. <laughs> you can even just see by the look of those cars, like an EB Falcon or, or whatever, she's punching a pretty big hole in the air. Um, downforce-wise, we don't, we can't really tell you what downforce they used to make in those early days. I don't think anyone can because they didn't test them. Mm. That's not mm. how the rules were. It was about dimensions um, and how big you can make your wing and and all the rest of it. They didn't do side by side runway testing until we got into the 2000s with AUs and VTs. And the other thing is with the modern cars, i.e. the ZB Commodore, the uh, Mustang GT, as it's officially homologated and known as, the way that they've been able to, they've all been pushing the envelope with what they can get through when they do those VCAT aero tests. So we've got to the point where these cars are basically punching a hole in the air that the car behind hits like an imaginary wall. They get close but they can't go on with it. They can't get to that next point that puts them in the slipstream to then have the lead car cut the air to then obviously move out and, and go around. I mean, Sandman was a great example of that where it's got some perfect corners for if you've got a power down advantage and a bit more extra grunt, you can't use it. You can't get close. You can't even get close to then pass at the next corner. So they've got to fix this up with the next cars because otherwise um, we're going to – the racing quality – has been a bit ordinary from that respect, from the aero. If we could get them back to kind of how they were in that era, it, you could actually slipstream people, and when you get onto them, you can actually use it to pull out and go on with it rather than hitting this sort of wall with the way that the air comes off the back of those modern cars. That's why guys can't get close. If you can't get close, you can't launch a passing move, and if you can't launch a passing move, you can't pass a bloody car. So, and then we bemoan why we can't pass. Well, it's pretty simple here. I reckon that we need to get back to a bit of that era, a bit of that stuff. Yeah, and the aero stuff now is worse at some tracks than others, mm. where Sandown was probably a pretty good track for racing, really, because as you say, it's got lots of 90 degree power down type corners where if you've got a tyre advantage, a tyre grip advantage, um, then you can actually get in a position to make a move where somewhere with more high speed corners, Bathurst is probably one example, but yeah, Sydney Motorsport Park, that type of stuff where the aero wash is, is really bad. And I think the, the other part of this question too is about the fact that the cars were more more lively, which isn't just downforce. Mm. It's also the stuff that can't be unlearned. We can easily, you would think, take downforce off the cars, but everything in the suspension, in, in your dampers and everything like that has just gone so far beyond what it was in those days. And they are great. Those early V8 Euro cars, are so good to watch. Those shootout <laughs> laps at Bathurst with the cars rocking and rolling all over the place mm. and the tyre grip was pretty good in those days. Oh, it was open tyres back then too. So they were the tyre wars were well and truly on for young and old and, uh, yeah, there was some leaping tyre. You know, anything on a Yokohama or a Scafie cars, lifting wheels everywhere and, uh, yeah, interesting era. Yeah, some different philosophies on how they went about maximising the grip of the different tyres as well mm. and... Yeah, if you go back a, only a tiny bit further, something like the GDR had amazing power down, really good straight line, but then you would see them coming into the chase, bloody bouncing all over the road because oh. the ride control was just nowhere. Yeah, yeah. and that's the, the bit that everyone forgets. It's great to talk about the arrow, 
uh, and the wings and stuff like that. But it's the it's the it's suspension, the it's the dampers, yeah. it's a bit of it's the vibe, it's Marbo, it's the Constitution, exactly. Uh, Stephen Brennan, what will go on with the current supercars? Can you see supercars fitting a crate motor the same as the main game cars, but detune them? Said it may be only five hundred and fifty horsepower. He's talking about for Super Two next year. Yeah, so I mean the. Main series is going to go to a new gen of motors, um, one GM and one Ford production-based engines, but um, we expect that the current main series cars will go down to Super 2 pretty much in their current form with, yep. with their current engines. Uh, there, there may be a little bit of detuning somewhere in the package to make sure that Super 2 doesn't go a lot faster than main game. Like we were talking about in the previous question, if they cut, they're talking about 60, 60% of the downforce off the cars. You don't want the Super 2 rigs going three seconds a lot quicker at Bathurst than, mm-hmm. than the main series cars. But aside from any slight tweaks there, we're expecting the Super 2 to receive the current Gen 2 main game cars pretty much as is. And the other thing is that teams have, you know, big inventories of these engines that, that next year in the championship, the Repco Supercars Championship, they're not eligible, you can't use them. So there's no point in sticking crate motors in Super 2 cars when you've got all this engine inventory that teams need to use to sell, to, to lease, whatever the case may be. So that's what's uh, that's what's going to happen there. Uh, Jamie Law, do you happen to know much of the story about the Kmart sponsorship of the HSV dealer team, how it came to be, the key people, the demise, uh, growing up, the iconic blue, red and white liveries always caught his eye? Now... There's probably, yeah, I can probably add a little bit here and you can add a little bit here, but the Kmart racing team as it was, um, it wasn't Kmart sponsoring the HSV dealer team. That brand name came along in the wake of Kmart departing the team, but Kmart obviously were a subsidiary sponsor at Gibson Motorsport when it was the Wins Commodores in, in 1999. Gary Dumbrell purchased the team, Paul's dad, uh, for 2000. Kmart became the naming rights sponsor and then the world just blew up at the end of that year because Craig Lowndes was on the market, Ford grabbed him, he ends up at Gibson Motorsport with uh, Bob Forbes actually owning Gibson Motorsport quietly in the background. That took a while to to come out. And then there was this play for, well, where's Kmart going to go? And there were actually a couple of games in town at the time because uh, Larry Perkins was in the running to end up with the Kmart funding to run some more cars from from his place. I'd love to talk to Larry a bit more about that when we uh, are doing some research for the book to find out exactly how close that did or didn't get. But in the end, that ended up at Clayton uh, alongside the Holden Racing team. John Crennan spoke to me earlier in the year. Or no, he wrote a column, sorry, in the HSV Owners Club magazine of Victoria. And he wrote about that he at the time when the Kmart thing was sort of, you know, in a state of flux, that he was working on plans to run another two cars out of Clayton, but as a HSV New Zealand team for Greg Murphy because he lost his seat in the whole Gibson Motorsport thing. Steve Richards did as well. In the end, Kmart goes to Clayton, two cars for Murph and Todd Kelly. That basically was the reborn Holden Young Lions car and team of 2000. So as Rob Crawford was a team manager. Uh, Eric Pender was there, I think, as the engineer at that stage. It was in a separate building within the Clayton Business Park to HRT, and that building became Kmart Racing from 2001 onwards, just with two cars in, instead of one. And I think the thing that a lot of people probably don't 
understand, and this is an interesting element that I love this stuff about racing. So remember all the different sponsors? Every year they kind of all changed. There was something, there was that Cola brand, there was Energizer batteries, all the products. So the way that, and other organisations have done this in the past, Kmart with the naming rights sponsor, but the way that they were able to, and I don't know the specific numbers or, or anything like that, I wasn't involved in that level of it, but they were able to go, all right, well, the team wants X million dollars worth of sponsorship. That's the price we pay. So all those subsidiary sponsors, they brought into the deal um, and, and they brought them along for the ride. So they were tipping into the, the can as well. But in return, obviously, a store like Kmart can give Energizer batteries, for example, better shelf space. They can give them um, more prominent signage within their store. All those sorts of things were all wrapped up and involved. So you could have a situation where you're the sponsor of a team and it's not costing you a whole pile. If anything, if you did it really well, you might make a buck out of it, which is um, even better. But uh, and then Kmart Racing kind of was the junior HRT, but it, you know, as you well remember, mm. it punched well above and beyond that. Well, it certainly hit the ground running when that rolled out in 2001. And the uh, the other part about the story that Creno recently revealed with that HSB New Zealand sort of dealer team idea is that he butted heads with Holden. He didn't want this Kmart money. He was so adamant that this HSB New Zealand thing was uh, the way to go. But Holden was so deeply connected into Kmart and the Coles group with fleet deals and yeah. the like that um, Holden pushed it through above his head. So, uh, yeah, what an amazing little uh, chapter that was. I'm sure it wasn't a total disaster that Kmart dropped a couple of million over the course <laughs> of the following years. But, I mean, they had some great success. Obviously, the two standout bits of the Bathurst wins, 2003, 2004 with Greg Murphy and Rick Kelly. Uh, it was Murph and Todd for the first two years, 01 and 02, and then it was Murph and, and Rick for the, the remaining two. Um, there was, in the middle of all that, the collapse of TWR, Offshore, so that meant that HRT, Kmart, everything was thrown in a state of flux. Um, um, John and Margaret Kelly purchased the team, or they purchased the licenses um, that continued it on. Then, as it all rolled through, they ended up engaging what was Holden Motorsport. It became Welkinshaw Performance Group to supply the hardware. Um, close to championship. Like the, not far away. I mean, I think Murph finished, was it runner-up in 02 to, to Mark Scaife? Uh, remember that he had to pull out at Eastern Creek in 03 when he did his back, getting out of one of the VB Challenge cars, and I think when he finished second or third in the championship um, that year as well. So they had plenty of opportunities, plenty of time. Remember they ran the older engine. They stuck with the 18-degree Chevy engine while HRT, being the factory team, had to go to the it was called the Aurora originally, but the Holden Motorsport engine, that held them in really good stead because they had this really steady known package that, you know, they got on a roll in a couple of its I mean, Bathurst was the, the clearly obvious one, but uh, 04 Bathurst, Spider-Man car, they won Bathurst, Murph won the Gold Coast, and then I think Rick Kelly won the first race in Tassie and his, his engine went bang and Murph ended up um, going pretty well at that round too. So they had a really good period. They were constantly challenging for the championship. They just didn't quite get it fully done. And, of course, they weren't the first Commodores to be rolling around Bathurst with Kmart all over them, the Warren Cullen deal back in the <laughs> early 80s, AJ. Taking us back there now, aren't you? Where was the retro livery for that? You were the Kmart Racing PR bloke. Where was that? I was, but I was busy putting Spider-Man on a bloody car in 2004. It worked out okay. Give me a break. Give me a break. Oh. Uh, what a lot of people might not know too, that um, 
for 2005, uh, Greg Murphy, so Rob Crawford actually had announced he was leaving. He was going to go work for V8 Supercars. But then uh, what happened? Oh, Garth Tander was coming to the team. Greg Murphy was leaving to go to PWR. Garth actually drove on the Kmart cars at a ride day at Winton late in that year. Obviously, he was with GRM at the time. He had the approval through Holden and, and the teams to do that. But he did get to drive a Kmart car. He never got to race one because by the time the next year rolled around, they rolled out as the HSV dealer team. Kmart's deal finished and they departed. And uh, Rob Crawford ended up deciding to stay as the team manager because he was keen to win a championship. And, of course, they managed to get that done a couple of years later as the Toll HSV deal team. So, Jamie, there you go. There's a bit of a uh, reminiscing of all things Kmart racing from that period in the early 2000s. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Uh, Les Connell loves the podcast. Always a good way to get your question asked on the pod, Les. Good job. He was wondering what happened to the B&H and Diet Coke Commodores that raced in the 94 Shell Australian Touring Car Championship. Now, we could go right into this, but that would do us out of a book. But it's great that people want to know about these cars. I can tell you that they are still around. Those cars are still around. The B&H car lived a long, long, long life in the hands of the Romanos. It's still with them. They've never sold it, never got rid of it. It's it's still with them in Queensland. And the Diet Coke car, the dude um, wallbanged it up at Lakeside, so it missed uh, racing Bathurst. It ended up doing um, privateer running in the years that followed and a bit of development series when it first kicked off as the Konica V8 Light series. But, uh, yeah, those cars are all still around. We'll have the full stories of them in our Perkins Engineering car book that's out a little bit later in the year, so make sure you pre-order a copy. Yeah, it's so cool to think, like, what that book's going to look like because it's not just, you know, those hero Castro cars that everyone thinks of. There's all these other colours in there as well and things like that Diet Coke car and the B&H car, they were beautifully presented, racing mm. cars. Mm. It was and just a really good era for liveries. I, I think there was a couple of things because they were what well, a lot of people might not think. Yes, they were Larry Perkins, you know, customer cars, but they were built at Larry's workshop by the Logomo team. Logomo being Longhurst Gardner Morris, Tony Longhurst, Frank Gardner, Terry Morris, B&H Diet Coke team. Um, their guys were down there at Larry's workshop putting the cars together with them, learning about the V8s because obviously it was a whole new formula, whole new world for them from BMWs this and Sierras. This is they do it in Munich. <laughs> yeah. The, and it's Munich got a couple of, extra, or whatever. couple of extra cylinders in that one. <laughs> so, and, and they ran a bit of a mixture of, of Holdens and Chev engines in those cars because at the time Larry was sticking with the Holden. He had to move to the Chev that year. But they ran the Chev, I'm pretty sure, in Tony Longhurst's car before Larry himself ran the Chev in his car uh, a couple of rounds into that season. So, yeah, there's another whole interesting chapter of the Perkins cars just in those two cars. Yeah, and a few little things that the Logomo guys, having seen how BMW do things, could uh, bring across to, to Larry's. And I've got a funny feeling Larry might have implemented a couple of those things into his car of <laughs> yes. that era as well. Uh, Daniel Sinclair, this is a corking question, and it has had me going for the uh, for the book collection here at V8 Sleuth headquarters. He says, when did the last Holden engine car compete in the Bathurst 1000 and who drove it? 
I always get disappointed when you refer to referencing books and things because we all think you've just got all of this in your head. <laughs> That's a very big head. That's a very big head. There's a lot of your, info your words around. Not mine. Very, very, very <laughs> piles of info. Yeah, anyway, lots of info. Yeah, I can tell you're bursting to give this answer. So go well, for it. I'm not sure this is 100%, but from my brief time of being able to do some checking. Now, the question, the important part here is, Daniel's question is, when did the last car compete in the Bathurst 1000? That affects the answer here, I think, because competing in the Bathurst 1000 to me means that you competed in the event. You don't necessarily have had to have started the race. But anyway, I digress. I'll explain why. (laughs) So I think that the last Holden engine Commodore to race in the Bathurst 1000 I'm thinking it's the Tim Rouse Ron Barnacle VP Commodore from 1999, which was originally the Product VN that was updated over the years. It's another Perkins car. It'll be in the book. It's an amazing story of where that car's been and what it's done. It definitely had a Holden engine in it in 99. I'm not sure what other cars off the top of my head might have had Holdens in them in, in 99. I think that the Chris Butler, Miles Pope, Trevor Crittenden car VR Commodore that uh, didn't uh, qualify for 2000, didn't pre-qualify. I think it had a Holden engine. It was the old Terry uh, Finnegan VN Commodore from back in the day. I'm pretty sure that had a Holden, but it didn't start the race. So potato, potato, which of the, the two do you decide? If anyone else has got any other suggestions on what might have had a Holden engine in it at the, in those races, or in, I can't imagine there was a Holden engine in 01 onwards. I can't think of one. They would have all been Chevs by that stage. But if anyone can think of a potential suggestion to get the answer correct or that I might be wrong, I'm all up for it. Send us an email through the website or um, through our, our social media accounts. But uh, I love thinking cool. about that era as well. Just the It was so professional at the front of the field by that point, but you could still try to qualify with a bunch of mates and a bunch of old bits that are 10 years old. <laughs> you got to hold an engine, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, how cool. Well, that car was eight years old by that stage, so and it kept racing uh, in, in the time afterwards. Uh, Elliot Beaton, this is good too. This is this is database stuff. What's the most common surname of drivers to conti- uh, I won't say compete, but participate is the word in Bathurst five hundreds and one thousands. Smith would be the obvious. Surely answer. it's Smith. It has to be Smith. How could it be anything but Smith? Jones, maybe. Smith. Jones would be on the podium. Oh, so I've got the answers here. I, I didn't pick up the sheet to even guess it. But so, how many Smiths do you think have competed in the Bathurst five hundred slash one thousand? A dozen. Fifteen. How many John Smiths? Two. Mm, there've been two different John Smiths. Um, and if you really want to stretch it, you can get to seventeen. If you count Barry Nixon Smith and Jeff Kimber Smith, they are Smiths. Why not? They're just not fully Smithed. Is that, is that a word? Is that a term? Mm, anyway, uh, you're right. The Joneses were close, 12. Russell is the other one, uh, nine. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's ever going to win you pub trivia, but, hey, if it does, send a slab to us. It's certainly trivia. If it's not that, it's, it's nothing. Uh, well, some people would say it's nothing, but some people would say it's golden trivia. Uh, Lachlan Winnell, uh, I'm told that Lachlan, uh, someone suggested on the questions on Facebook that Lachlan's a bit of a voiceover specialist. 
So do you reckon we need to get like a, you're listening to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. Do you reckon we should get Lachlan to send in an audio file and see how he goes? Or maybe you can just uh, rest your voice a bit for the book plugs and just press a, press a button and Lachlan exactly. comes on. These book plugs do not do themselves. My voice will blow up if I have to do it every, do all of it. Like, let's get someone in to do some other lifting here. This is good. Uh, Lachlan, if you're listening, record something and send it to us. We'll have a listen. If it's good, we'll use it. If it's not... We'll tell you that it was good, but we won't use it. Anyway, uh, love the podcast, gents. Keep it up, he says. That'll get the question asked. Are there any former WPS Racing chassis restored back to the original WPS Racing spec, and are any of them still running? Well, I think you might be the man for this. I think a couple of them went to New Zealand, did they? Yeah, they were used as ride cars over there. Uh, I think they're still there, actually. But as far as I'm aware... Uh, there was an AU. Remember that there was the, the, the ex-Neil Crompton AU that he... Is that the one that went to China? Correct, with Alex Jung for the, the launch of the China race at Shanghai. Um, and I think it ended up getting converted into a in, with BA panels as a show car later on down the track. But none of those cars that raced as WPS back in the day have been, as far as I'm aware, put back into their WPS livery um in, in recent years, but they're all still around. They still exist. Uh, none of them have been written off or destroyed or chopped up or um, parked up anywhere else. So uh, they are around, but um, no sticker jobs have been done. Uh, McKay Berry or Berry McKay? I'm not quite sure which way around that should be, but nevertheless, good question. What's the most underrated Bathurst win? Ooh, there's a few to choose from here, but what are you going for? My uh, my gut feel is nineteen seventy five, the Brock Sampson oh, okay. win. Yeah, yeah. I feel like as a as a privateer effort, having split with the factory team, that was a real line in the sand sort of Brock moment of man, this guy can do do anything, <laughs> um, and and it's one that it's not as glorified and reminisced on because it's not an iconic Marlborough car. I was going to say, it's not a HDT. Because it's not a factory car. Yeah. And it's a bit earlier, so there's not so much, you know, footage of him sliding it around and all this stuff. But yeah, for me, I think that's a that's a great story that's probably not not really told as much as others. It's an interesting one that you mentioned because we did do a pod talking about that car and about the Bathurst winning cars. If you're new to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco, go through our back catalogue because we have talked about that car uh, specifically in the past and all of Peter's Bathurst winning cars. I sort of took the question a bit differently. I reckon in terms of underrated Bathurst wins, I think of the ones probably more modern that just don't get the cred, just don't get... When you see highlight reels of Bathurst wins... It's kind of the same stuff, and justifiably so because they're the famous names and the, the hero teams and the hero cars. I reckon 98 and 99 are the most underrated Bathurst wins. The Jason Wright, Stephen Richards, uh, Stone Brothers win, and the Greg Murphy, Steve Richards, uh, Gibson wins win from the following year. Because they, they're not HRT, they're not Kmart, um, they're not Dick Johnson, they're not Mark Scaife, Peter Brock. It, they just feel like races that have fallen and wins and successes that have just kind of fallen in the cracks. Yeah, they're Bathurst winners and it was great, but they don't get put up in lights enough and I think they deserve to be so because any Bathurst win is special and important, but I feel like they just get overpowered by all these ones before and after. So I think they're the they're the two underrated ones from that point of view for me. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you talk about 
you know, Pertec success in supercars, or if you talk about uh, Gibson Motorsport success at Bathurst, they're not the cars you probably think of. So, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to your point, yeah, Gibsons, you're going Nissan GDR every time, aren't you? You're all a pack of, yeah, you know what lovely, I mean, lovely, lovely people, lovely, lovely people. Well, that was ten years later. He did that one. He he dropped that one in later. Uh, Saren Thatch is a regular listener of ours. He's a sleuther from way back. Uh, saw him at Sandown, by the way. He's a huge supercars fan. Uh, who holds the record for the most did not qualifies in touring car history? From memory, I can only think of when there was pre-qualifying in the early 2000s when we saw it. This is one for the database. This is a trap because we often get people asking questions about when's David Thexton going to be on the podcast, something, something, David well, Thexton. Often, but this is a question every bloody week, that mate. feels like it's tailored to give a specific answer. So what does the database say? Do we get what we are all expecting? You tell me. You've got the bit of paper in front of you. Way to ruin the magic here. <laughs> yes, it's David Thexton. Ta-da! Cue the, uh, cue the applause. Uh, based on races, it's 10 that he didn't qualify for, which can be a little bit unfair because you could not qualify and not make the time in the qualifying session and then you're out for three races. Yeah. But in those days, it was the round. It's Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't separate qualifying for each race, so you could keep on having to go trying to get into the next one. So... Uh, so, either did not qualify or did not pre-qualify. That was really, and Saren's right, it's that era of late 90s, early noughties when the fields were booming and the track limits were only such that there was always going to be some people who missed out because they had that real, um, was it 32 cars was kind of the density of a lot of tracks that they wanted to get to. It wasn't for the track, it was for what they wanted to do in terms of Avesco and the garages and the, the split of prize money and appearance money. And, yeah, but and Theco was a little bit after that stuff though because I think some of the other names that are like around the top there, your Barry Morecambe, your Alan Heath, your Mike Imry, that was in that late 90s, I think a lot mm, of those. True where by the time Theco was there, you could play in the development series if you wanted. Well, he did as well. And you needed a license to run in the main game. So, mm. I think like missing the 107% rather than missing a sort of grid density-based one is... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for those playing along at home, the scores. Uh, so, this is by the numbers here. So, this is races that were missed because they didn't qualify for that round. Thexton 10, Morecambe 8, Alan Heath 6, Mike Emery 6, Richard Mork 5, and Bob Thorne 5. There you go, Saren. You've got your answer. Oh, Ken Wright. Interesting. NASCAR's holding an event on dirt this weekend, which was the weekend just gone. How do you think supercars would go on dirt? Well, I mean, when you when you look at what NASCAR did for their cars, I think if you did the same sort of stuff I didn't keep to, up a, with it. to what, a supercar. What did they do to their cars? Well, obviously, they had a dirt tyre. They had... Um, a lot of shields and, and blanking and stuff to make sure you didn't ingest a bunch of dirt and dirt and garbage into the into the motor and all the oily bits. Um, things like the you know we'd need a different front bar raised, obviously. Mm. Um, and they they actually it was optional to run the splitter or not in the NASCAR, but I, just on uh, gut feel, you would think no one would have run it because it would have just got destroyed. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean you you take the splitter off from underneath. You would also have to uh, do a different rear wing package because um, when you're sliding the thing with the right rear corner up on the up on the cushion, it's probably going to take these big ridiculous Dumbo. Um, I've, I've lost the word. What's the uh, the end plane on the wing? You know those massive end planes we've got at the moment. 
End plate. That's end the plate. word. End plate. I'm thinking, why are you trying yeah, to find a I was word that you just said? way more complicated than it needed to be. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, all that costs money, though, right? And uh, it's it's amazing that NASCAR have done it. Oh, um, it's out there, but it's you've got to be different. You've got to be inventive. You've got to you've got to mix it up in sport to get the attention these days. And that's definitely done it. There's no, and and it's funny. I did read a couple of comments from drivers. Kevin Harvick was one who when this was all announced said, this is crap, I don't want to do it, this sucks, it's just bad, it's literally dirty, why are we doing this? Gone and done it. How good was that? That was great fun, how good. And it's given that event now, uh, that track, that date, real equity because it's it's the it's the dirt round. You know, back in the day, uh, kind of like the, the early days of IndyCar racing, you know, it was the tarmac stuff that was kind of the exception to the rule. So... Um, I feel like the market out there of sport, if you can create something that's cool and different and unique in your own platform, why not? It'd be like, you know, getting supercars to do a roval race at the Thunderdome, you know. Oy, that'd be something interesting. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, we could give all the boring answers about why, why it wouldn't happen for economic reasons here in supercars, but I'm surprised that like a, a Red Bull type haven't done any sort of demo slash viral video content of, one of their cars at Parramatta or something like we've seen them do. Well, they've done uh, everything else pretty yeah, much. Yeah, like drifting down, down the beach and all of that. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, obviously we saw Kelly Racing run a Nissan Jack Daniels car mm. on the Thunderdome on mm. the tarp, but um, yeah, be sick, yeah. sick watching a car slide around the dirt. Sick. <laughs> I haven't heard that word for so long <laughs> when describing something that's good as opposed to someone who's feeling ill. Uh, Jason Arundel, what was the reason behind Perkins? By the way, we're not loading this with Perkins questions. People just love asking about LP. Uh, what was the reason behind him running the five nut, um, five wheel nuts against the single wheel nut in the nineties? It was basically maths. Yeah, five, five being better than one. Yeah, um, yeah. Funnily enough, um, not too long ago, I was watching the uh, eighty-five Bathurst DVD. <laughs> which insert plug here, and uh, it also has has the bits from the ad breaks that never got broadcast. Mm. And I'm pretty sure it was in one of those that. Um, so LP was driving with Dick Johnson in the Mustang, and um, they've got the race cam on, and Larry's come out of the pits, over the hump on Mountain Straight, puts the foot on the brake, and there's this massive shutter in the front end, and the wheel wasn't done up properly, mm. and that was a single lock nut, and uh, somehow he nursed it around the whole track without the wheel coming off. And I think it was tucked up in under the, the mud guard. Yeah, it wasn't the wheel guard. They pitted the in. car, um, jacked her up, and just plucked the wheel off. No rattle gun required. <laughs> and I, I would think that uh, I've never actually asked Larry about it, but having had that happen to him, which uh, really hurt them at Bathurst, yeah, five, five studs. The theory was always for him that five mounting points was better than one. You know, so if one gave way, there's four left. Rather than if one gives way of one, there's none left. Yeah, so, he didn't seem like the sort of cat to be caught out by the same thing twice, the old LP. Uh, so. No, no, that's very true. Very true. Good point. Uh, Jesse Grimwood will round us out for this one. When will Lounsey be a guest on the pod? I've asked. I've tried. Our diaries and our schedules haven't connected yet, but we've we've been working on it. We're trying to do it. We're keen to do it. It's not a case that he doesn't love us. We don't love him. We love Lounsey. He loves us. Uh, I want to get on a plane and go to Queensland, do a bit of a tour and bring the recording gear and sit down and, and have a chat to some dudes and Lounsey's definitely on that list. So we intend to get there. We will get there. We, we will definitely get there. Just not sure when, but 
Beautiful. Now yeah. we're plugging products we haven't even made yet. A lousy <laughs> podcast. Tune in sometime, somewhere. It's like the Larry book. We haven't made it yet fully. We're working on it, but we haven't quite got to the end on that. But um, we've got some great chats coming up in the next couple of weeks. It, it's been um, a busy period, Easter, all sorts of stuff going on. So uh, supercars events, people's schedules, it's hard to get that time to, to sit down. But we've got some really good Q&As coming. Uh, not just Q&As, but sit-down interviews is what I meant to say uh, coming up in the upcoming weeks. So tune in for those. We've, we've always got the Q&As. Um, whenever we do a call-out, we always get a pile of questions. So, again, thank you to everybody for getting in touch and, and firing in your question. If you didn't get it answered this time, keep sending it in. Uh, we can't get to them all, but we do do our best. If we try to answer them all, we'd probably have a 23-hour episode, and we don't want to put people to sleep, quite frankly. It's... There's probably other ways to cure insomnia than a 23-hour V8 Sleuth podcast, that's for sure. Uh, next Monday, we're back with Repco Supercars Weekly. It's our weekly look at the goings-on in the Repco Supercars Championship, counting down to the Simmons Plains round that is next up on the calendar in Tassie. Uh, Easter is on this weekend. Uh, plans for Easter? Anything? Well, hopefully I'll be watching a bit of Bathurst six hour on the Sunday. A bit of telly, a bit of motor racing. Never goes astray. A bit of family time as well. Nice, nice. Good man. Good to have you here, Stephen Bartholomew. On the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. That's us for another week. Join us on Monday for Repco Supercars Weekly, and we'll be back with another longer edition of the pod next Wednesday. In the meantime, scoff the Easter eggs, eat the hot cross buns, and we'll chat next week. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.